the stickiest product in healthcare is your relationship with your primary care doctor. People stay with their primary care doctor for literally an average of 10 years, for decades. Because why start over when they know you and your history and where you work and your personality and your likes and dislikes? You're going to go to the same doctor that you built a trusted relationship with. Right. And so now if you could have subscription-based access over the long term, boom, you have a nice little business on your hands because you are facilitating convenient access, something that people expect to pay and use over a long period of time. Hey there, you're listening to Paradigm Shift, a podcast about people building the future and pivotal moments in their journey. I'm Ashish, and I'm joined by my co-host, Zayn. And today, we're super excited to speak with Sean Mera, who's the founder and CEO of HealthCap, which provides affordable primary care to Americans at their fingertips. I want to thank a bunch of people who very helpfully submitted some awesome questions. Rob Akins, Isaac Silverman, Eli Schwartz, Christina Farr, and Jeffrey Reitman. And with that said, welcome, Sean. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I'm eager to hear what my good old friends had to ask me. HealthTap is an OG, right, in the consumer health tech space. And it's been through a lot of phases, which I'm sure we'll get into. But to help frame the discussion, would you explain what HealthTap is today and maybe give us a sense of the product and the scale of the business? Definitely. So HealthTap today is a virtual primary care clinic. And we offer our services affordably to every American, whether or not they have good insurance. And our mission is to place a long-term primary care doctor at every American's fingertips to manage conditions or everyday health concerns, because primary care is not only so important in preventing and catching issues before they become worse and more, more costly for us, it is doing it virtually, I think, is a key way we're going to overcome some of the issues we're running into with cost and quality and access to healthcare and figuring out a way to distribute access to that primary care in an affordable manner to all types of Americans, I think is key to that. So that's why I'm just really excited about what we're doing and what problem we're solving. And could you walk us through the patient experience? Yeah, it's pretty straightforward. So we're a membership-based model, right? So for less than the cost of music streaming or movie streaming at 15 bucks a month, you get to be subscribed to a doctor that becomes your doctor to choose and keep for the long term. And for that 15 bucks a month, you can text with your doctor, Dr. Smith, as much as you want. Anytime you need to quote unquote FaceTime, you can schedule a video appointment for just $39. So if you have insurance, it might actually be even less than that. And then if your doctor's ever asleep or on vacation or it's nights and weekends, you can actually use our 24 seven urgent care, which is staffed by doctors in all 50 states. And we'll pick up with a median wait time of seconds, if not minutes. And you can get access to prescriptions, referrals, lab tests, and interpret those results, doctor's notes for school or work. So it's a pretty complete experience, but it's a way essentially that you can have the privilege that I had, which was growing up with my uncle as a physician. I got to call him and text him whenever I had a stupid question and didn't have to think twice about it. And I think everyone should be able to have that uncle doctor or auntie doctor. That's amazing. So as I was hearing that, it, it almost sounds a little bit like like one medical, but built to be like telemedicine first. Is that yeah. a way to think about in it? Some, I think one medical is a very familiar business uh, in the sense that they really focused on innovating on the customer experience, which is not something you think of doctor's offices focusing on. And they also have a membership-based model. You need to be a one medical member in order to benefit the most from their whole practice. I think the key difference is, like you said, we're virtual, whereas One Medical has built 
maybe a virtual experience on top of their brick and mortar clinics in all the cities where they operate. And by virtue of being just virtual, we can price very differently than one medical, right? I can position myself as more affordable for a broader spectrum of Americans because look, I don't have to operate very expensive clinics and very expensive zip codes around this country. And where I can't offer you a flu shot or take care of your wound or administer a procedure, I refer you out to local partners. Could be a one medical. It could be a specialty hospital or health system. So is there like a Pareto principle at play here where I think a lot of people would have this misconception that when I see my doctor, I need to be there in person. But is there some distribution where it's 80% of the issues that you actually need to see your doctor for, like getting school forms or, or checking some cold symptoms are actually totally fine with virtual? You're exactly right. First of all, primary care is 80% useful 80% of the time to 80% of the people, right? By the Pareto principle, primary care is your good catch-all general first stop for any health issue. And then there's all sorts of varying estimates as to what percentage of visits with your primary care provider actually require in-person examination and how what percentage of those visits are purely information, right? In exchange of words and advice and guidance. And the estimates range from anywhere from 50% to 80%. That is the majority of interactions of people across all sorts of medical conditions can be well-treated, well-managed through a video or text connection. Now, Certain people with certain types of conditions probably need regular in-person examination. And I think the key there is for the people you can be useful to most of the time, reach out, establish the connection, become a brand and earn your spot on the home screen of their phones as the first and most convenient way they're going to access their doctor. And for the people who probably still need a regular in-person PCP, be a compliment to them be an add-on, be an augment. When their doctor's not available, at least you can be to tag team with their local provider. So I think there's a utility in it for everyone, but obviously we're more useful for people with hypertension and diabetes and asthma and obesity and mild depression than we are with people managing a pregnancy or people handling a very complicated condition like cancer. So are those the, the customer segments where you see like the strongest adoption or engagement people dealing with some of the things you just described? It's very funny because people are very bad at investing in behavior change for things that don't have immediate payoff. So doing things that we all should be doing, like timely prevention and testing and screening and healthy living, these are not things that most yeah. healthy individuals go out of their way to seek out. So most people that have an ongoing demand for primary care are actively dealing with a health issue that requires them to do. That's pretty intuitive. So yeah. that's why we have the most obvious utility for people who have chronic conditions. So if you do have one of those things, I say, you expect to get a refill every 90 days and manage symptoms you expect to have on a regular basis. And so non-surprisingly, you find that people with one or more chronic conditions see a lot of value in subscribing to HealthDep and using that as their new and convenient and affordable way to have access to a doctor. But it's also really useful for family. You know, the whole art and idea of the family doctor who knows your parents and your parents' parents and your children and has taken care of your whole family has faded away and you get to bring it back because for 15 bucks a month, which covers the cost of your children, you get to pick one doctor. Your kids are going to get sick multiple times a year. You're probably going to catch what they have. And it would be nice if you could just see the same person. Uh, and yes. it'd be nice awesome. if you didn't have to take time off of work or school 
and you could do it through an app. So families are another really great demographic and cohort. Makes sense. So it's almost in, in like I grew up in India and I used to go to the doctor all the time because it was so easy. And I moved to the States and I think I've been to the doctor like zero times because the friction is so high. Unless I'm dying, I'm not going to go into the doctor. Got a product for you, Zane. <laughs> you reduce the friction where you increase the usage and in a helpful way. You seem, Zane, you seem like a pretty healthy guy. And so maybe in your case, by reducing the friction enough, by lowering the barrier to interact with the PCP, you might be more engaged with a doctor around prevention, wellness, and screening and doing the things to keep you healthy. If you're not actively managing a health condition, maybe we function more like a concierge medicine for you, which otherwise used to be extremely expensive and only affordable by the, the rich and famous in this country at our price point becomes a way for you to have a BFF doctor yeah. that you can text for everyday little things to make sure you stay healthy. Well, the $15 a month doesn't sound too bad. The the 39 per video consult sounds high, even to me, someone you know who lives in Silicon Valley and San Francisco. How does that show up in your engagement? Are, are most of your customers people who have insurance and therefore it's sort of covered? Or are most of your customers people who don't have insurance and therefore it's much cheaper than paying an insurance premium? You know, as, as a group of people here on this call, which have the privilege of growing up in some very wealthy zip codes and having some great resources and healthcare available to us, sometimes it's easy to lose sight of the plight of most of this country, okay? For you, $39 might seem relatively expensive to the copay you have from the great insurance that your employer gave you. The average deductible, the deductible is the amount of money that your insurance expects you to pay out of pocket before any of the insurance actually kicks in. The average deductible in this country is $2,000 for an individual or $4,000 for a family, okay? Think about the average salary in this country, the average household income. That is a significant portion of your personal income that needs to be spent completely out of pocket. For Do you think yeah. that if you went into a doctor's office today in your neighborhood, they would charge you anything less than $39? Your bill is going to be $120, maybe $200. If you walked into an urgent care, which is what most people do because they'll delay it as long as possible, their bill is going to be $300 to $500. You walk into an emergency room, it's going to be $2,000 for something that was probably pretty stupid, right? So when you compare it to the alternative, it is a steal. And then when you say, what if you have great insurance? To be honest, if you have great insurance, your copay is maybe $10, $15, $20. The price point between $39 and $20 is very small for someone that gets the benefit of ongoing texting and at-home access versus, as you said, the friction and inconvenience of going and seeing the doctor in person for $10 off. Yeah, totally. I am out of touch with what anything costs because I have this <laughs> great insurance. And to be fair, I'm also healthy, so I, I don't have to actually go and see what things cost. And I think a lot of our audience is in that cohort, so it's helpful to have you contextualize the value for like most of the country. Exactly. Uh, you said you grew up in India and America loves to pride itself in its insurance coverage and the quality of the healthcare system in many regards. But the reality is that most Americans interact with the healthcare system like most Indians do, which is showing up with cash <laughs> to pay for whatever they can pay for. And if they can't afford it, they leave or avoid it. You yeah, know, we talk about healthcare being a fundamental human, but it's pretty much what can you afford still for most people. So let's talk a little bit about how you build traction with a healthcare company, because it's it, it's really hard to do. There's regulation, there's all this complexity in the system. And so we'd love to hear a little bit about how you guys 
honed in on the current product you have and how you got early traction and built that initial momentum, which can be really hard to do. I think most entrepreneurs are exposed to the bias of media headlines, of fundraising and straight shot unicorn successes that make us think that most startups are this rocket ship out the gate or they're a bust. And the reality is that more cases than not are these longer than expected paths to success. And these pivots that you'll never hear headlines about that had to be taken before the growth moment that a startup finally experiences. And so healthcare or not, I think we need to appreciate that entrepreneurship is a game of resilience and maximizing what we call our luck surface area, being in the game long enough, learning iteratively enough such that when the opportunity presents itself, you'll be ready to seize it. Healthcare is even more so a game of patience and resilience because of the additional hurdles you have. Like you said, you have the regulatory challenges that you have to overcome and think about. You have powerful incumbents with uh, resistance change on their business models. You have consumer expectations and education, which think of healthcare a certain way that require a new way of thinking. So I think healthcare even more so requires that type of patience. But in our case, I think the biggest lesson I've taken out of my experience at HealthTap is timing is a significant portion of a startup success. So there's a story of general magic and the invention of the iPhone before Apple created the iPhone. They were just a decade or two too early. And so when we were starting in 2010 at HealthTap, we'd throw around the term telehealth so easily these days. But just 12 years ago, it was a very foreign concept. Doctors were literally afraid of getting sued on, for giving advice on the internet. And today, post-pandemic, we're like, of course you should be able to connect with your doctor by Zoom. And so when we began, we also had a challenge of market timing. Like we were early. We were trailblazing some paths that never had been blazed before. We were solving problems we'd never expect to solve before. And we were encountering challenges of consumer adoption awareness on the both the demand and supply side with physicians that you never think you have to challenge. So for us, it really had to be, again, continuing to experiment and continuing to survive until you have your breakout moment. And for us, it just happened to be a couple of years ago when all the stars aligned right before the pandemic, that we had the epiphany we did, that the solution is a direct-to-consumer approach at an affordable price point selling a long-term primary care relationship. The pandemic was a fantastic tailwind. It catalyzed a lot of awareness around the fact that when you're stuck at home, you should be able to connect with the doctor without leaving your home. So that helped us. But it was a lot of other forces that came together. Like the fact that five or six years went by of the first generation of telehealth. People got exposure to companies like Teladoc and Anwell and started learning and understanding what it is and then realizing what the next generation needs to look like. And HealthTap, which was always building generation two of telehealth, basically showed up once people realized generation one was not enough. And we were around to seize that. And that's what we're doing today. So I'd love to dive into some of that because I feel like the HealthTap story is like this incredible like case study in resilience, which as you said, is honestly like the, the cornerstone of all entrepreneurial success and doesn't get fair share of time in the limelight. And you guys started HealthTap in 2010. We're in 2022 now. The pandemic was in 2020 and that was like clearly like a crazy, amazing 
Black Swan moment, but probably you had some acceleration from 2018 onwards. Tell us about those first eight years, which I'm sure were incredibly hard. What were some of the key moments there? Where did you guys start? I'm sure you tried a bunch of different ideas. Take us through some of that before we get to like the, the happy moments that came later. Yeah, it should all start with the consumer need and pain point, right? Any product you're looking to build, any business that you're looking to build needs to be centered around what is the value you're bringing to people's lives? And so we started with that very genuine question saying, we know nothing more than we're a group of people that think healthcare should be more efficient and the healthcare experience should be better. We have no assumption yet about what the problems are and what the product should be. And so that's how we started with a very open mind, knowing nothing more than we're a couple of talented, ambitious, and uh, mission-driven people that want to make the world a better place, especially in healthcare. We looked at what consumers were doing and what was annoying them. And it's actually something that continues to be true today, which is that most people, when they have a health question, the first thing they do is not call their doctor's office, go to their insurance company website, walk into a pharmacy. The first thing they do is search the question on a search engine. Google itself reported that 7% of all searches are health related. That is a billion searches a day are done related to health. There aren't even a billion doctor visits in a year in this country. So people are going online with health questions literally 365 times more often than going to the doctor. Hundreds of times more often than going to the doctor. And then you go, okay, is that experience good? No, of course, you and I can relate too. You Google headache and you see a WebMD article about brain cancer. You want to know about the whether vaccines are good for your baby and you end up in an online forum or social media group where strangers are telling you all sorts of nonsense. And so we said, oh my God, here's a consumer behavior that exists in high frequency, high quantity, and there's no good solution. And then we said, it's been solved before. So why not apply the existing solutions into healthcare, which is there were sites like Quora and Yahoo Answers and Stack Overflow for developers where you could crowdsource on the internet answers to your questions from a group of experts who are volunteering their knowledge. Wikipedia was founded on the same premise, and that was the beauty of the internet. And we said, why couldn't we do the same with U.S. doctors? Why couldn't we get physicians who are motivated to dispel misinformation of health information online and participate in educating consumers the right way? And lo and behold, there were more than a few doctors, in fact, 90,000 physicians today, that have signed up to volunteer their knowledge, to answer strangers' questions on the internet for free. But today, HealthTap has amassed millions of questions and has, in turn, amassed millions of doctor answers, creating this huge database of basically healthcare's FAQs. And that's how we began. It was just simply recognizing a high-volume consumer behavior that had no good solution and taking a playbook from another industry and applying it to this one. And when HealthTap was born, if you think about the origins of the name HealthTap, it was a very mobile-centric vision at the genesis of the App Store and that whole time of the internet. And the idea was that you should have a doctor always one tap away. In this case, it was the knowledge of a doctor. But what happened? A few years later, we're doing tens of millions of visits on healthtap.com every month. We're this high-flying pioneering, it wasn't even called Digital Health back then, it was called mHealth for mobile health company. And we have our next very natural epiphany. Some percentage of the people who go online to search their health question 
decide that they want an actual diagnosis and prescription. They go from, is it safe? Should I be worried? Is this expected to? Okay, but what do I have and what should I take? And if in that moment, we already have a site and an app where you have doctors on one side and consumers on the other side, why not facilitate them getting into a live conversation and going from education to actual diagnosis and prescription and care? And heck, we're a business. So we'll throw a paywall and we'll make sure the doctors get paid for that because they're no longer like spreading good information. They're doing their job. And uh, we'll see if consumers bite. And that was the birth of telemedicine. HealthTap was one of the first direct-to-consumer telemedicine companies in this country with a nationwide 24-7 urgent care through an app. And so you say, was HealthTap's destiny always to be a virtual care company? Did you guys have this vision of telemedicine when you began? No. It was just an organic discovery. We solved one consumer problem and then another and realized that there was a flow here that made a lot of sense. And so now in retrospect, we seem like these visionary pioneers that anticipated telehealth was one of the key solutions of the healthcare system. But we were really just product and design folks thinking very logically and rationally about the design of a solution that meets an existing need. That's a great summary. I actually remember searching and coming across HealthTap like a decade ago. And I remember finding the quality quite high. It sounds like there was like this inflection moment where you tied everything together, as you said, and you got it all to work. Did you consider other business models? This is a, a question from Christina, which is there's so many different ways to approach the market, right? You can go B2B, and then there's many routes that way. There's B2C, and then there's other products that have been built like Hims and Row, who have slightly different business models. So how did you end up on this particular vision, and how did you know that was the right one for you all? Through a serious amount of trial and error and a lot of error. Mm -hmm. Okay. We were pioneering not only a new consumer experience, a new workflow for physician and provision of care. We were pioneering a new, you know, landscape of business models. No one knew what the right answer was on how to build a scalable, profitable company. In many ways, and I perhaps take this as a badge of honor more than anything, I've had the privilege of experimenting with almost every single business model under the sign in digital health <laughs> over the last 12 years. And it was only until the current one did I have the conviction and confidence to say, this is it. In this yeah. competitive landscape, in this market environment, with this target demographic, I think this is the winner. But what did we do? HealthTap started as an SEO-driven, subscription-powered, direct-to-consumer website. Then we had mm -hmm. large self-insured employers just like Teladoc and Doctor on Demanded. Then we had deals with insurance companies in the US and abroad. We've done deals with governments. I've done deals with small physician practices, hospitals and health systems, and you name it, okay? I've probably contracted that type of entity with some type of arrangement and learned the challenges and benefits of each of those business models. Now, there are merits to any of those, right? And there's challenges that come with any of those, but HealthTap was a group of people that by DNA was very consumer centric. We happened to have started the company with a bunch of assets that gave us an advantage in acquiring consumers online better than the competition. And so were we the best enterprise sales force completing RFPs and whining and dining benefits brokers or insurance plan executives or hospital executives? No. Could we do it? Yes, we were early. So there was a lot of land to grab. But at some point, you have to find not only your product market fit, you have to find your 
team business model fit. And we were a team and set of technology and marketing assets that were very well suited ultimately and ironically to the business model with which we started. As a DTC born company, we almost took a detour and tried out all of these B2B models and only to finally discover that where we started was our ultimate destiny all along. And we only knew that because we got to see if the grass is greener and realize that it was green where we were watering it all along. So you guys had subscriptions on a SEO-driven web property in the early days, and a consumer could sign up and pay X dollars a month to get access to like more information and faster responses or something of that sort. That's right. And the version of the product we had back then is very different than the one today because, look, the first generation of telehealth was basically a hotline. It was a call center just through an app, maybe with video, where you talk to the first available doctor or nurse. In our case on HealthTap, it was always all doctors, but it was a stranger. And they were going to help you with that one issue. They weren't going to be responsible for what happens to you two weeks from now or a quarter from now. They were just going to give you that antibiotic for that fever or infection you have today. Okay. And urgent care, what we found was it was very useful. When people are sick, the immediate gratification of getting in front of a doctor and getting a prescription is very powerful. Unfortunately, it's also a very hard product to build a business off. People need urgent care by definition, urgently and unpredictably. Yeah. How are you going to build a subscription where people are expected to pay every month for something that they don't know when they're going to use again? That's the very definition of insurance. You're buying peace of mind in case and when you need it. And what we realized a couple of years ago, the epiphany we had, which unlocked the success we're seeing today, is that what makes for a great subscription is actually the stickiest product in healthcare. Not digital health, in healthcare. The stickiest product in healthcare is your relationship with your primary care doctor. People stay with their primary care doctor for literally an average of 10 years, for decades. Because why start over when they know you and your history and where you work and your personality and your likes and dislikes? You're going to go to the same doctor that you built a trusted relationship with. Right. And so now if you could have subscription-based access over the long term, boom, you have a nice little business on your hands because you are facilitating convenient access, something that people expect to pay and use over a long period of time versus urgent care, which, by the way, in hindsight, attracted a lot of hypochondriacs, Right because they were subscribing to urgent care because they were hypochondriacs and right. wanted to use and abuse connecting with doctors for every single ailment they thought they had. That makes total sense. And my understanding of building a product that relies on a primary care subscription is that the hardest part is acquiring the customer in a cost-effective way. And once you do that, it can be very sticky um, and a great business. And sounds to me like because you had this incredible SEO property that was driving a bunch of traffic, you had an advantage in terms of acquiring customers through that channel um, into your subscription primary care physician product. Is that right? And then once that sort of started to saturate, how did you think about new customer acquisition levers and, and what were some lessons learned? You really hit the nail on the head in many ways. I think all businesses, not just consumer businesses, need to pay a lot of attention to lifetime value and customer acquisition cost and the ratio between the two, which is called your LTV to CAC ratio. I think too few businesses pay attention to that metric. Typically only the direct-to-consumer and subscription-based model businesses or e-commerce businesses do. But it's important for the unit economics of any business. And you're exactly right. Our Q&A forum, 
was a content marketing asset that generated SEO traffic and gave us this advantage, competitive advantage on low customer acquisition cost. And I would say we're nowhere close to saturating that channel. There's a tremendous opportunity to capture more and more queries on the broad range of things that primary care can treat that people are looking for answers to on the internet. That said, CAC is also a function of getting really good targeting, showing ads to the right people in the right channels and reaching people through non-traditional channels that are not overly competitive, like influencers and affiliate marketers, not just buying another Facebook feed ad or Instagram feed ad, like every other company does. And those are things that become possible because of our direct consumer business model. If I was limited to a sale with an enterprise, I probably couldn't justify signing on an affiliate or an influencer to push me to their followers. And the cap for an influencer, I'll tell you, I guarantee you is much less than buying Google ads or Facebook ads. Now, the other side of it is LTV. If you have very long lifetime values, a very long lifetimes, very high LTVs, very sticky subscribers, you can justify a higher CAC. And so the key then becomes, are you finding the right cohorts who want to use your product for a long period of time? So it's not just about CAC in general. Is it the CAC for the right type of people? And that's where we learned what I said at the beginning of our call here, which is that People with chronic conditions, people with families, people on high deductible plans correlate very strongly with being high LTV customers. And we measure this stuff every day. And it's a combination of knowing our LTV and our CAC, which enables us to be successful in DTC. So in, in many ways, your content on the internet, that's like an incredible asset, right? Like it, it's hard to append it. It is remote, right? SEO content. Absolutely remote. Um, yeah. That's allowed you to find the segments that work, and then you can go and spend an appropriate amount to, to continue to acquire more of those folks. It's and a machine that, that grows itself, Zane. What's so fascinating, just a small little anecdote to the point of what you're saying is when COVID first hit, we were calling it coronavirus. We didn't really even have a name for it. It wasn't even called COVID-19. We had questions asked by consumers all over the country and world about this coronavirus and infectious disease specialists around this country answering questions about that disease, which humanity and mankind had never heard of before, before the CDC had public guidance. So all of a sudden, we were meeting demand with supply organically without anyone at HealthTap ever deciding that we're going to go and try to capture COVID-19 related health queries on the internet. Yeah, so it was a this amazing machine that kind of nurtures itself and becomes more complete over time. Yeah. And honestly, that was like the big Web2 breakthrough, right? UGC. Um, every major Web2 yeah. company in the consumer space is, is UGC driven because it's like this incredible compounding engine that's like unstoppable beyond a certain point. The hard thing tends to be getting them going. So how did you guys get your SEO engine going? What, what, did like the, what was the first few things that allowed you to draw early traffic and build that flywheel? I think that's a loaded question. And I think the nuance here is, especially for health SEO, it's very important that your content is trustworthy and credible because you're dealing with people's lives and, and well-being. And so the seemingly simple design constraint that our you in UGC was a doctor, okay, our users were actual physicians, was the key trait that made our site so indexable by search engines. Because 
This was not the blind leading the blind. There were all these patient forms back in the day, even during the beginning of web two, where patients were misinforming other patients without the oversight of any trusted clinician. So just by design, we said, if the people answering and the only people allowed to publish content are licensed and credited physicians, then by definition, what we'll have is high quality content. And if we can, it is a virtuous flywheel. More consumers post more questions, attracts more doctors, creates more answers, generates more traffic, creates more consumers, right? So it is a virtuous flywheel. And in our case, actually, if you really want to get into the history, we started with new and expecting moms and pediatricians because people who are pregnant and about to become parents have a million questions a day that are highly repetitive for the pediatricians and gynecologists that answer them. And so he said, hey, ob gynes and peds, wouldn't you love to just answer this question once and publish on the internet and direct all your patients to this resource with your answers? And that was the community that seeded it all. I, I led uh, SEO at Thumbtack for a little while, uh, which is also like a major like marketplace that had a strong SEO core. And we seeded content in a few categories that allowed us to get things going. So it sounds like what you did was you took the most common questions in a couple of categories, worked with doctors to produce great content, and then that brought in some traffic and then people could ask more questions. And then the doctors answered those and that kind of like, in a sense, jump-started your flywheel. Is that sort of that, fair? That's right. And I wouldn't underestimate the, the design that it took to create an experience that doctors wanted to participate in. These are very busy professionals. And so understanding physician psychology and what makes them tick and what motivates them was critical in designing a product that they wanted to volunteer their time for. And so simple product choices like instead of putting a like button on the answer or an upvote button, we called it a thank you button. And all of a sudden, doctors are getting thank you notes from all over the world by people. That's very motivating for someone who becomes a physician. And then we said, you know what? When physicians see each other's answers, it's not going to be called a thanks button or a like button or an upvote button. It's going to be called an agree button. And then all of a sudden, getting an endorsement from a reputed colleague from an institution on the other side of the country was hugely motivating at enhancing your online reputation. So there were a lot of things and thoughtfulness that went into kind of gamifying it for physicians. So it was enjoyable for them. They got something out of it other than just the philanthropy of it all. And so that was a key too. That's amazing. As a consumer product guy, and I know Ashish is too, I love that. That's awesome. I, I can see what yeah. you mean by consumer DNA brought to healthcare. So how did you guys get to 90,000 doctors? Like you must have done something to, to drive that acquisition or... Uh, the, the credit or, goes to my co-founder and hero, Dr. Jeffrey Rutledge. This guy, a unicorn by every sense of the word. He's a double board certified physician with a PhD in health informatics. And he can probably complete a surgery and write a Python script to train your machine, al machine learning algorithm at the same time. So this guy happens to also be a physician that knows how to market to physicians. And so with a lot of the leadership from Jeff... And creating a community of physicians that said, you know what, be part of the solution. You guys are frustrated with the healthcare system. You're frustrated with the misinformation that patients walk into your rooms with. Be part of the solution. And know what you have is this tiger team of Silicon Valley product guys and girls who are building a dream system for you. So we solicited their feedback. We actually launched features in response to their feedback and showed the efficacy of them participating with us. So they said, wow, you guys are actually heeding our advice. You're building something that we like, and we actually think is solving a problem. And you'd be surprised if you find your 
key opinion leaders early on and your influential users early on and get them on board with active product feedback, how quickly it spreads by word of mouth. And then once you get into very smart email marketing that rides off that brand halo, you can slowly and surely build a pretty big network and community. So I'm not going to say it was some kind of like instant viral hit. This was a physician network literally a decade in the making. But I remember celebrating 5,000 doctors. I remember celebrating 50,000 doctors. I remember celebrating the 90,000 doctors we had. It was a grind of building that community over time. And then as you guys know, on the product side, all community and user bases atrophy and decay over time. So it requires a constant active nurture of community management and programs like top doctor competitions and celebrating the top cardiologist in Wichita, Kansas for the quality of his answers in 2019 and all sorts of things we would do to celebrate and recognize the tremendous work these docs were doing. I wanted to ask a question by Rob Akins, our mutual friend. What are some of the regulatory challenges that you all have had to face? I think the U.S. is doing pretty well with consumer privacy and data protection. I think we've struck a good balance between the extremes of what GDPR presents and no regulation in some countries whatsoever. So that's where I'll give us some good points. I think there's a lot of archaic systems that remain, though, that is definitely holding innovation back. The cost of operating a telehealth company today is unnecessarily high because of the way we credential and license physicians. A physician that went to medical school in Florida can't see a patient in Florida because he, he got licensed in New York. How does what state you got licensed in really determine your ability to prescribe a medication to the same patient, whether they happen to be in New York or Florida, even though you went to school there? So it's silly that we'll train doctors in any state, but we'll only license them in particular states and then constrain which patients they can see. You know what that means for telehealth companies and digital health innovative companies is you have to pick a state where you need to operate, but you're virtual. You're connecting with doctors on the internet. What do you mean? It's very silly. It's very silly. So unless you are venture-backed or have the means, resources, and time to staff doctors in all 50 states and get them licensed in all 50 states, you're creating a lot of operational overhead for something that doesn't need to be that costly. So that's one. There's still uh, really insufficient insurance reimbursement and coverage for virtual care. There's a lot of movement there. Right now through the pandemic, it created a lot of awareness and interest to say telehealth visits should be reimbursed just like any in-person visit, but we're still not quite there. There's still some plans that say, unless you have a physical doctor's office in my state, I can't bring you a network. Silly. Did this get better during the pandemic? For some reason, I thought some of these rules changed. For some plans and for some cases, absolutely. The pandemic probably accelerated this shift for the better by almost five to 10 years, but there's still temporary. There's a lot of movement in bills to try to make some of those changes more permanent, but then you still have commercial plans and private payers who will make their own rules. So it'll take some time, I think, for this to really be solved. There's also one other thing I will say. There's laws around, good laws, called anti-kickback statute that prevent physicians from being financially motivated to refer to one provider or another. And they're put in place for a very important reason. But in an era where you know, medical groups and physicians are powered by startups like HealthTap, whose very job it is to do brand building and patient acquisition at large, it creates a lot of constraints at how you can acquire patients and what kind of contractual arrangements and marketing agreements you can get into with entities. 
right? Because you don't want to be perceived as acquiring patients for a particular meta group that basically doesn't comply with these statutes. So it creates a lot of, I, I bet, unexpected innovation constraint for what the, in, the regulators, when they wrote the law, intended. And so I think a lot of that needs to be revisited too, is how physician practices and businesses that try, acquire patients are able to market themselves and acquire new patients. That makes sense. And just to clarify, before the pandemic, when you provided virtual primary care, was the consumer always getting a physician in their state? Oh, absolutely. Even to this day. Again. Yeah, that's very inefficient. <laughs> extremely inefficient. I literally have a physician license in New York, a caller in New Jersey. Yeah. The doctor in New Jersey is on the line with another patient for another 15 minutes. I have to make that patient in New Jersey wait 15 minutes because the idle doctor in New York, that's probably like 10 miles down the road from him, is unable to take the call. And so if you want the simple promise of a nationwide all 50 state service, which in any other industry is trivial, okay? Mm -hmm. You need to staff literally 50 doctors. If you want 24-7 coverage, you probably need 150 doctors. Or you need to invest in finding doctors that have multiple state licenses, which itself is an expense. Wow. Yeah, that's very challenging. I wanted to ask this question from Jeffrey, who's your good friend from high school, which is amazing. And then <laughs> college and you start a company together. You're going on to your 11th year at HealthTap in a world where everyone changes their jobs like every two years in Silicon Valley. And you're obviously an interested, motivated person. You could be doing lots of things. What's kept you around at HealthTap for this long? And what's your vision for the next 11 years? I can only answer this question by first acknowledging my privilege. I went to Yale. I went to Stanford. I don't lose sleep at night wondering if one job doesn't work out, if I'll be employable. I don't. I have to acknowledge that. So it gives me the freedom to take risks that probably many people can't. Okay. But that said, I just firmly believe that in any career in life, there is no destination. There is no win condition. There is no each peak reveals the next peak to summit. <laughs> so there is literally only ever this moment and this grind and you have to find a joy in it. Otherwise, you're just a victim to the grand illusion that is the rat race to touch some horizon that is always out of reach. And that's just all a very fanciful way of saying that the cliche phrase of enjoy the journey is what HealthTap has been. At every moment, at every turn, I was learning. I was rejuvenating my uh, passion for the mission. I was seeing many of the original problems we wanted to solve still unsolved. My own role within the company, as you said early on, kept evolving so that I was constantly faced with new ways to contribute towards our success. And there was never a day that it was dull or I was bored. And I don't think you could have asked me to predict I would be at the same company or startup when I first founded it 11, 12 years later. I don't think anyone ever predicts that. And if you ask me what the next 11, 12 years bode, I will say, I don't know. It also doesn't matter. <laughs> I think what's most important is how today was and how tomorrow will be. I saw a Rumi quote recently, which was, walk in the path shall appear in front of you, which I liked. Exactly. I love that. I love that. I want to cover some advice to founders, and I want to also, we have some budget closeout questions that we ask. Before we do that, I want to circle back to 
one last thing, which is you all had this, as Zane put it, a black swan, black swan moment. Like you created virtual primary care, low cost for people that have, you know, urgent needs and might not have excellent insurance coverage. What did the pandemic do to the business? That must have accelerated your growth. Did it change your strategy for fundraising, the way you think about acquiring users? The pandemic was a lot of hype, but it was also a lot of disruptive change that otherwise would have taken a very long time to happen. So in one sense, the hype was good for us too. There was all of this press around how virtual care and telehealth is saving the day when people are quarantined at home. You saw explosion in the metrics of telehealth utilization by some of the largest telehealth providers in the country. The reason I said it's hype because once new case rates would uh, subside, utilization of telehealth went almost back to previous levels. Maybe it was 10 times more than before, but it was 10 times of zero is still close to zero. On the other hand, what it did was it gave people a taste of what was possible. We call the first virtual care visit you do with a primary care doctor, your rideshare moment. The first time you tried a ride-sharing app to get from point A to point B, there was no way you're going back to hailing a yellow cab or dialing a taxi number. And so what the pandemic did was it gave people that taste. It let them push a button and get in front of a doctor and say, that was easy. That was really useful. <laughs> I should do this more often. And so again, this becomes a matter of being resilient enough as an entrepreneur where you're in the right place at the right time. And in this case, there was this asset, Zane, that we had built to acquire patients efficiently, to operate this very complex clinical operation nationwide that was developed over almost 11 years, 10, 11 years at the point. And then you had this new ground that the pandemic broke for us in consumer education and awareness. And then it was a big blue ocean for us, right? It was the world being our oyster. If we now met consumers in this moment saying, Glad you liked what you tried during the pandemic. Why not make it a regular part of your life going forward? Here's a company, a brand, and a price point that you could do it with in a way that you love. And I do believe that's a major contributor to the success we're having with some of the conversion rates, with some of our CAC, with some of our ability to scale campaigns. It is facilitated by that demand. So what's the, the scale of the business today? I'm curious. I'm sure people listening will be curious. We surprise ourselves in the first full year of focus last year, we had 22 million people come visit healthtap.com. And that SEO traffic base is only going to grow as we continue to uh, revisit how we publish and index this content for search engines out there. One in every thousand Americans created an account with HealthTap last year, just in the last 12 months. So we had 365,000 signups for our app, which was more than I thought and is a fantastic start to any first year of any business. Of that, tens of thousands of uh, people start a paying subscription to give you a sense and order of magnitude. And that's just scratching the first surface because so much of that year what, as a startup was being really careful about marketing budgets and testing a lot of things at low volume. So I think this year is going to be a breakout year. As I fundraise, as I bring capital in, even though in many ways we present as this somewhat reborn, rebirthed, nascent business model and DTC focus, we're kind of a growth stage company. We built the asset. We did the R&D. We've you know, instrumented the operational excellence. Now it's all about demand acquisition.
So we have a bunch of closeout questions that we like to ask every guest. And I think you answered the first, but I'll ask it again, just in case there's someone else on mind. The first is, who's the most talented person you've worked with and why? Yeah. The most talented person I've worked with is my co-founder, Jeff Rutledge. You all just have to meet him. I used to joke that the Dosekis, most interesting man in the world, has nothing on <laughs> Jeff Rutledge. This guy, Love man, it. doctor, computer scientist, helicopter and plane pilot, almost astronaut for NASA once, worked in a beer factory to taste beers. I can't, scuba diver extraordinaire, I can't even begin to tell you <laughs> the hundred lives he lives while doing all the things he does, helping me build HealthTap and our doctor network. That's amazing. He sounds like a really cool guy. Second yeah. question is, what's something you believe that would surprise most people? I think I answered this already. It's that there is no end to this, right? I think one of the most valuable lessons I learned through the pandemic, through some medical issues in my family that made me rethink our mortality as individuals is that life is so random. And all you can really do in any given moment is do good work with good people and spread positive energy and light to the, everyone you touch. Everything else is honestly just an illusion. Yeah, I love that. Third question is, uh, who are your heroes? Now I'm going to get super geeky on you, but I'm a huge Star Trek fan. And so the Starfleet Academy and its principles of United Earth and a joint species-wide effort to explore new frontiers and the pursuit of knowledge and no war, no famine, no energy constraints. And that's a dream. And the people who run that future are my heroes. And I hope to be like them one day. Love that. And last question is around superpowers. Everyone has a certain set of things that, that feels like play to them, but work to others. What are some superpowers that you like to lean on? I think my one superpower is a complete embrace of this phrase I have tattooed on my arm. It's a Punjabi phrase from Sikh culture from which I come and it's Chardi Kala. And it's a phrase that means always stay progressing. And it actually has a lot of deep meaning, but the way I interpret it is if something bad happens to you, if you have a massive setback, don't let it stop you. Take the next step forward, move on, progress. But conversely, let's say you win the lotto, something fantastically good happens to you. Don't let that stop you or get in your head. Take the next step forward and do the next thing that you're required of. So I think my superpower is keeping that level head in the best of times or the worst of times and taking the next step forward. And I think so much of entrepreneurship is summarized in that statement. I can't imagine a better way to close out. Sean, thanks so much. This has been a really great conversation. We hope to have you back on sometime again soon. Thanks for your time, guys. And hopefully we'll do dinner and drink soon. <laughs> Love to. Let's do it.